Good morning, radio listeners. Today we have a very special show for you. Today is the day we launch Arizona Mysteries of History. It's a weekly show that's airing on Thursdays every week, and it's going to be available as a podcast on our website. So if you miss an episode, you can listen to it there as well. Today's show is a fun one. Just about everybody's heard about Roswell. You've heard about the Roswell UFO crash, right? Oh, of course. (laughs) Well, that crash was in 47, but did you know there was actually an UFO incident in Kingman in 1953? Yes, I did hear about that. And in fact, you know, with how how much happens, like, or everything that has happened with this story, it's kind of crazy that, uh, because Roswell should be considered the Kingman of New Mexico. You know? Really, it should, yeah. Because what happened here in Kingman in the, in the 50s goes far beyond what Roswell even compares to. Like, Roswell's just like a little tidbit compared to everything that went on in Kingman. Cue Twilight Zone music. Yeah, I know. It was the summer of 1953, and unbeknownst to the people living in the sleepy little town of Kingman, Arizona, events were unfolding above their heads that would lead to one of the largest UFO cover-ups you've never heard about. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. So, (laughs) what happened? So, we actually have a guest on the show... Uh, we interviewed him recently. His name is Harry Drew. Uh, he is the foremost expert on the UFO incident that took place over the course of actually seven days in 1953 in May. All right. So I, you know, I had initially heard about this story. There was a there was an article that was posted by um, Arizona Central in 2015. Mm-hmm. I think it was. And that's kind of what got me onto that at first. Now, it said that when this happened, it was May 21st that all of this went down 1953. That's part of the story, yes, but there's way more to it than that. It actually, there were more than one UFOs, and it happened over the course of multiple days. Uh, the first one was actually May 18th. Now, Harry Drew, he's a historian. He researched this topic for well over 10 years. He did in-depth research, conducted interviews. He's got his hands on historical information that nobody else has, uh, and he's actually debunked a lot of the local lore from the so-called experts in the community who've, you know, it's become part of their folklore now. So, uh, obviously, there's myth and some, legend surrounding it. Surprisingly, there's not a lot of people around here that know about it, though. People Not a lot of the younger here. people, right. It, it's crazy to me. Even some of the older people. I was talking to some older people the other day, and I brought it up. They're like, no, I've never heard of that before. Right. You know? So, but, I mean, it could be an older person thing for people that have been in here for generations. You know what I mean? So, it's just interesting all around. I, I find it curious. The more I hear about it, the more I want to know. Right. And we're actually, as a matter of fact, as we're recording this, we're planning on going out to the, uh, we did some scouting of the alleged uh, May 22nd crash site. And we're going to go out there again later on this week and do some more in-depth looking. We're going to take a metal detector and everything because apparently not all of that crash uh, is believed to have been recovered to this day. Alleged. (laughs) Alleged. Right. Right. We weren't there, but the person who interviewed the people who were there, Harry Drew, here he is. He's going to be talking about the first of multiple UFO incidents, the May 18th one. The first one happened May 18th. 1953, it's the craft, the entire Area 51 story is based on, okay? Okay. It landed, it didn't crash. It made a forced landing, its rate of fall was uh, eight feet per second. Normal rate of fall, if you drop your pen, you just hold it out in front of you and let go, it's 32 feet per second per second. It was a controlled, not very well, but a controlled descent and uh, probably a bit hard of a landing. And uh, uh, all there were, according to the witnesses uh, who responded at the, with two hours later and uh, to the airport at Kingman, it was no longer a military base. There's stories about, I mean, all kinds of things that there was an Air Force man there uh, in 1953 in the tower and he saw the bogey on the PIP screen and he looked out into the night uh, out the windows and he saw a flash of light as the Kingman UFO crash. That's completely impossible because the tower had been stripped of everything in it 
in June of 1945 after it went into disuse and had no further use after the surrender of Nazi Germany. Okay. It was closed, all of the equipment stripped out and destroyed, including the PIP screen. And um, then in August of 1945, the entire military base vacated Kingman, Arizona forever. There were no military here presence from uh, Air Force, Army Air Corps, uh, Army or any other uh, branch of the military uh, that was stationed here as an active duty force. They weren't there. They were gone. So that complicated things when the craft here came down in 1953 as far as how to get them out of here and not make it a public event, and uh, which, which was handled in a routine way. Pretty simple, actually, but it's made overly complex by the, the turkeys that have uh, uh, made themselves a, a, a little moment of fame and a, a, a wad of money for their wallets. And that's basically what's happened. So this was the first of multiple, um, I guess in this case it wasn't even a crash, the, the whole spaceship landed fully intact. Yeah, so there was a landing, and then there was a crash. Right, so this one happened on May 18th, and this was actually in Kingman. And uh, I find it interesting because it is pretty easy to back up uh, to verify that the Kingman Air Base was actually, in fact, shut down before some of the people claimed that they, from the air base, saw the crash. Yep. So it is actually interesting because you can easily verify that just with a, a quick Google search from multiple sources. So and it and it seems like from what we looked up that the Air Force did return to the air base, but that wasn't until 1955. 1955, but coincidentally, the the air group that did return to the base in 55 uh, was started a month to the day after the second crash. I had read that it was it, it said June 20th, 1953. Now, yeah, and then they started a month later, but they were based out of California. So this air group, the 659th Squadron is what they're called. Yeah. What I, what I find it, I mean, obviously the military was involved, but what I find interesting is uh, the story that goes with how it was actually transported. So but I remember reading about it when I was a kid about Area 51 and how they were talking about how they had a, a UFO crash or UFO that had landed and they brought it to Area 51. And that's when the story and the lore about Area 51 having aliens started. But I didn't know that it was our very own Kingman UFO that started that whole... Is that what area. it was? It was, yeah. And uh, it, we're going to play the clip in just a minute, but he actually talks about, Harry Drew talks about how it was transported to Area 51 from Kingman, given the fact that there wasn't really military at the time. Now, rewind. Like, we didn't take one, like, the supposed craft that landed, right? We took the one that crashed. No, we took the one that landed. Really? Yeah. Now, how how would... See, that's where I'm like, how would you catch a craft that's... Or get in possession of one of those fully intact, you know, or even find out that it was there? Well, because there were witnesses to it landing. Yeah, I'm playing devil's advocate right now. Of course I know that you are. I always hate of course the devil's advocate. Well, I know, but I always hate the devil's advocate, but I, know, it's usually I feel me. like I'm playing yes, but I feel like I'm playing it right now. Like how would how would they get that? You know, I mean like who would be like, "Hey, there's a UFO in here," and then the army shows up and they're just like, "Freeze, don't move." And they're like, "All right, you got us." Well, I mean, landed is a little bit of a stretch if you recall he said that they were descending at 8 feet a second. So I mean, they were they were downed. They just happened to recover from it. Got so it. So they were they were they were downed. They were so, not. So it was a fully intact vehicle, whatever it was, but it just had it was kind of banged up. See, I was always under the impression, even until now, that it was the crashed vehicle that got transported across the lake. Right, and that's part of the what he was talking about with a lot of this mis misinformation that's out there because you know everybody picked up on a story in UFO magazine in 1976 that was released about this, and then it, it kind of spun, and everybody has their own little and they basically just printed you know whatever right, they heard right without whatever fact they checking. heard without fact checking harry actually fact checks all this stuff and tracks it down and he goes back as far as the 1800s to see if even if the geography and everything lends itself to being able to do that because they talk about roads uh and you'll hear it in this upcoming bit they talk about roads 
that this was tra- allegedly transported on that, didn't that even weren't exist. even exist. They didn't even exist yet. So, yeah. uh, but that's what we're going to listen to next. He's going to be recounting how the Kingman UFO was transported to Area 51, Groom Lake at the time. The recovery of the Kingman UFO. It was it was finally loaded on the M25, and the Air Force blocked uh, Highway 40 from Kingman to Barstow, California. That's 206 miles, and uh, and all the side roads onto Highway 40, and uh, for four days, and they towed it. They towed the UFO uh, down Highway 40, and then down what would be the Black Mountains, uh, down to the Colorado, and they crossed the bridge and went up. The hill to Highway 95 North uh, in Nevada to take it to uh, uh, Groom Lake, Area 51. Well, the problems are, though, I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding you. You can read this for yourself. And this is a story, and it's like sworn to, and was then it was by a professional investigator, uh, supposedly. That's what he said he was, and. And uh, like some of the other people say, they're microbiologists, Ph.D., spent uh, 12 years uh, in S4, an underground facility that uh, uh, isn't actually at uh, what we call Area 51, but they say it is. And and the guy was uh, like he was a security guard in Las Vegas at a casino and then spent some time as a security guard at a detention center for the county or the uh, Clark County or the state, uh, and uh, um, you know, in reality, but he claimed to be a microbiologist and something else, DVDs, books, speaking presentation, all this kind of stuff for years, and then it got exposed, and so that's the kind of thing that happens, but the one here, going down 40, nobody's going to close the highway off to go from where the craft went down and to get it down to, to the Colorado River and the Colorado a basin down by Laughlin and, uh, right. uh, and take four days to do it. Uh, if it was uh, southeast of Kingman on the other side of the Wallapies. Uh, and, uh, and so I came back with this by saying the biggest problem we have here isn't the fact there was no bridge, okay, uh, which they later changed when I said it publicly and they changed it. Well, they took them over the dam. So I had to so I took care of that in a book, too, a full-page thing, where Needles is complaining uh, and uh, the Desert Star is complaining about, front page, that there's no there's no bridge. there's no You can't use the dam. It's, it's not even done. It's a dirt dam. The service road's 15 feet wide, you know, up to, up to 1954. And so, I mean, it's some reality things. But the other reality that stopped the whole thing and makes the person a blatant liar is that, Highway 40 is is an interstate 40, and it was made 31 years later. Oh. It opened on October 24th, 1984. There's a little problem if you're taking it at night, you know, in, in uh, May of 1953. Exactly. Yeah, and, and there are no side roads off the desert directly on to the interstate. You either use an entry or exit ramp. You see, so the, the research mind is stuff. Is just incredibly bad. So the thing that I find really interesting about this is that, you know, Harry doesn't just tell the story and retell the same story that other people have been telling for, you know, decades now. He actually has gone back and done the research and verified a lot of the claims that they've made. Like, I mean, if it, and, and I've looked it up as well since talking to him. A lot of this stuff didn't exist. So how could they have possibly transported it the way that a lot of the claims were if the roads didn't exist, if the bridges didn't exist at the time that they made the claims that they transported them over? Plus, he debunked several of the people who were alleged authorities, like discredited them. So I I think... I think he is the authority, in my opinion. And, you know, not only does he, like, give us the information, that's what I like about talking to him, is that he gives us things to look up, too. You know, he's like, go verify this, so we'll go and look up this, and we're like, oh, yeah, in fact, that did actually happen. You know what I mean? He goes, and this happened, and, you know, this didn't open until then, and this was already out of here by then. We spent the whole afternoon yesterday um, checking out the Kingman Airport, you know, and, like, just kind of going through things to see, you know, it's like, yeah, it did shut down here. It was reopened for a brief time here, you know what I mean, this and this and this, but 
yeah, it, it's it's fascinating listening to all of this. And he has debunked a lot of people. I think what a lot of that is, I think it's a lot of guys that are hearing these things and making right. up just all this crap to sound cooler than it is. And of course, over time, once you know, you tell it to one or two friends, and then they'll go and tell a couple friends that day, and then it's you're like telling the game all telephone. of them a week later. Exactly. When you were a kid, yep. you know, you whisper something into somebody's ear, and by the time it makes it back to you, mm-hmm. something completely different. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I appreciate. It. I'm much more inclined to listen to a skeptic than I am to listen to somebody who believes something right off the bat the first time they heard it. Right. So, and that's what I that's why I appreciate about his research is that he actually took the time to, you know, like I said, decades. Go, right, go back even to the 1800s to verify that things either existed or didn't exist at the time because if they didn't exist in the 1800s, then right. Right, you know, so how do they exist now? Right. It's just there is so much. The more I learn, the <laughs> yeah. more I want to know. This is really a rabbit hole for this one. I mean, there are so many different things out here. And, you know, if any of these were, I, you know, I mean, because I always say that we we we, we have our opinions, you know, and they're set after you look at so many things and you can have an opinion and be like, yeah, that really happened. You know what I mean? Like, or no, that probably didn't happen. I, you know, I, my, my opinion, my personal opinion, I'm like, yeah, I'm like something definitely happened out there. Something happened. Like to the extent, I don't know. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that anybody outside of the people that were there and controlled all this information so it didn't get out. No. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I mean, you can do you can do a mountain of research, but if you weren't there. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you, you I know, believe with, something happened. I strongly be, believe something happened. With Absolutely. How, with how crazy all of this is, you know, even... The people that, you know, were there and saw it happen, I'm sure, or whatever, you know. Question their own sanity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, know I, that I I know that I would. I'd probably be scratching my head a lot, and I'd, I'd just be like, is this really, like... <laughs> I've had two experiences in my life with what, uh, what, would, what people would define as UFO. Right. And I, even to this day, I, I have to confer with my friends occasionally. I'm like, that actually did happen, right? <laughs> yes, I've had those conversations before. Like, yeah. we, there was there was one when I was in grade school, and my entire school saw it. And uh, it got so, the discussion about it got so intense that our principal actually had to come over the intercom. And, like, he made up this story that he thought would, like, it was the most ridiculous thing. We saw what was clearly not an airplane. Yeah, and it was reflective, and it was in the sky. It was clear as day. Nobody, not all of us saw it. Teachers, everything. We all saw it. We're all staring at it. And the uh, the the story that the principal told to, I guess, try and put us at ease was that it was a seagull with aluminum foil on it. Which, okay, come He's like, on. Yeah, the Air Force just called <laughs> me. Uh, it's a seagull with tin foil in its mouth. <laughs> Isn't that how the government works? <laughs> uh, pretty much. But then the second experience, it was um, I used to live up in Reno, and we we have this uh, thing called uh, the the hot air balloon races. We have it every year, mm-hmm. and we have this event called Dawn Patrol, where it's you know as the sun's just starting to come up, they light up the balloons, they synchronize it to music and everything. So we're all like looking around, looking at the stars in the sky because there's no lights yet. Dawn Patrol hasn't started, and it's in the it's outside of the city. Mm-hmm. So you can actually see the stars. And we look up and we notice the star dotting across the sky. Like it looked like a star. Yeah. And it was just do- darting across the sky in different directions. Like not like a plane could move. Like it wasn't banking. It was coming to a complete 180 Stop. without yeah. even You're turning. talking about bouncing back and forth. Right. Yeah. Right. Almost like Pong. Was there like a color to it? No, it was just white. Yeah. It was just white. But we looked at it and we we, we joked and called it the star on crack. But we looked at it. It looked like it was a star on a string and somebody flicked it. That's what it looked like. Yeah. But my group noticed it. And then all of a sudden we're looking at other people who are pointing at it. And the next thing you know, the entire field of people out there have stopped and started to stare at this thing. Yeah. It was it was it was crazy. And then there's some alien that's in that craft who's like me. And he's like, Woo! right like back and forth. Just, just drunk. That's all it is. They think it's something crazy happening. It's just some moron that's like breaking protocol. Why aren't there redneck aliens? Come on. You know they've got to exist. Exactly. You know they've got to exist. Oh man. But that's but even to this day and I lived those two experiences, even to this day I question it myself. So I, I don't think that we'll ever truly know. I know what I've seen. Right. You know what I mean? I, I've seen several incidents. You know what? It makes people uncomfortable. But my personal opinion is in this day and age, 
I don't know why it's taboo to talk about still, because we see the technology that we have. Not only that, but we've been going to space since the fifties, right? As a human, as a human race, with the equivalent you know I mean? of a T ninety eight calculator. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, come on. <laughs> so I'm not. I'm not going to sit there and have somebody be like, "Oh, that's far fetched." I'd be like, "Well, you know, we have a universe that we can't even make it out of our solar system yet, and you're telling us that there's no way that there could be life outside of that when we have a universe that's billions of years old." I would say that it's safe to assume that there might possibly be other beings out there that are way older than us and have had a lot more time to develop things. Actually, correction. Voyager 2 has officially crossed the Terminator of our solar system. Talking about human beings, not our technology. No, I know. I'm just saying. (laughs) Right. I'm just saying. Until we can get a man to do that, you know what I mean, in a reasonable amount of time. Or a woman. Right. Or a woman. (laughs) I don't... You know what I'm saying. (laughs) But, (laughs) yes. But, uh, yeah... It's a fascinating story, and it's not over. So you've already heard about the UFO landing on May 18th, but there is so much more to the story, including the alien dogfights. They have a handful of crash landings, and there's even supposedly an extraterrestrial prisoner. Or two. Or two. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Plus so much more with uh, Kingman UFO expert and historian Harry Drew. Uh, We recorded an interview with him a couple of, uh, about a week ago now. And uh, he recounted several events that happened in May 1953 in Kingman. Um, We're going to be talking about the dogfight. Yeah. So basically, it seems like there was some sort of engagement that was going on up in the sky with multiple crafts. Right. So my my we've talked about this privately, but uh, my my theory, you know, and and y'all y'all can make your own theory after you after you hear the uh, encounter but my theory is is it's two different sets of aliens two different sets of aliens yep <laughs> and this earth just happens to be the battleground right because you for ta- some reason right for some reason but i mean like you hear you that's hear, entertaining the idea of this you know you know what right, i mean yeah right. you hear the idea of like ufo encounters and stuff and like in, in general there are like two different types there are the triangles and then there are the uh Saucers. So my suspicion is that they are two different alien races. And for whatever reason, just coincidentally, why we happen to be in the midst of a world war ourselves, they were battling and Earth just happened to be their one of their skirmishes. Who knows? It's fascinating, though. Yeah, isn't it? It definitely is super cool. So it's fun to hear about it. Just there's so many things that happen within this story. There were just there were a lot of it is just crazy to me because there were like so many downed ufos between 1940 and 1960 like yeah. worldwide like that seems to be about the time frame where most of them most of these bigger incidents occurred right maybe that was just because maybe they still occur but our governments have gotten way better at cleaning it up and covering it up well yeah so, i mean they just released the other day uh i think it was the pentagon released um, oh that video yeah ufo UFO three ufo surveillance or videos that they mm-hmm. had from their pilots or something like that yeah. from military pilots so it's pretty interesting it's crazy especially it, when those pilots are like dude what is that you know what i mean they have no idea what it is right and and they would know too because they're, they they fly that though uh, uh i mean they I mean, do am- that from time to time amid every you know amidst this crisis you know, there. I just feel like that adds to just the chaos. I don't know. It, I I don't know either. But I'm I'm glad that they did because it's just it's interesting to look at. Like I said, I am a skeptic, but like you know, if something's beating me over the head, I'm I'm gonna listen to it. Yeah. So. Same. But I find it fascinating, and I like I like concocting wild theories myself. Not saying that there's any credence to anything that I'm saying, but uh, we do have an expert in the field. Uh, he's going to be talking in just a second, but he has done the research. He's conducted the interviews. He's uh, compiled all the evidence. Harry Drew, here he is right now, talking about the 1953 May 21st dogfight. Three men. One was a man who was under contract with the Air Force, United States Air Force, to train fighter pilots in three bases in Arizona. The other was a, the sports editor for the Prescott uh, newspaper, and another was a businessman, and they were out. They were out on the ground looking at a pond they had stocked with fish for a kids' fishing derby 
church-related kids' fishing derby on a, on a coming Sunday, and they were up to check to make sure the fish were okay and all of that stuff. And the, and the pilot, the guy that trains fighter pilots, looked up, and this is five flight minutes away from their crowd, the UFO sitting on the ground with the Air Force, the Kingman UFO, okay? Mm-hmm. And these guys look up after the, the man that trains pilots pointed, and there were eight flying saucers above them, one on each side, hovering, and six in the middle doing aggressive dogfight maneuvers, and they watched them for over an hour. That's front-page news. And, but nobody else but the Air Force didn't know that uh, these guys saw the, the craft. There's no evidence of any report. This is 1953. Flying saucers. Eight. That's a bold statement, Cotton. <laughs> it's a lot of... It's a lot of aliens. Yeah, for real. Yeah, and, and like I mean, from from you know the size of the rest of the crafts, I mean, they're not they weren't small. So you figure eight, two of them just sitting there, and then six dog fighting in the middle. That's a, that's a big swath of sky. I always wonder though, like why this area? You know, there's I mean, Arizona in general is such a hot spot for UFOs. You know what I mean? You have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Phoenix Lights. It? Well, you have the Phoenix Lights. You have the Travis Walton thing Travis up in uh, Payson where he was abducted. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was Travis Walton, right? Was that his name? Travis Walton, I believe. And, uh, you know, uh, this whole thing out here, the 1953 crash. Right. I think, like, you know, I think it has more to do with remoteness than anything else because there's a lot of reports in Nevada, obviously. But then there's a lot of reports in uh, New Mexico. There's reports in Alaska. Um, I think it just, I think it has to do with, it is every, yeah, it is everywhere. It just, I, I cause don't you don't really hear the reports in the city being out in the middle of the desert in the middle of nowhere. It kind of like lends itself to, you know, being able to see more of the sky, especially at night. I know it, it really does because especially when you're driving through the desert and you're looking out, you know, and it's just open, you know, it just leaves so much more to see in the sky, you know? So well, and then you don't even, have a skyline, you know, essentially right. you have mountains but a lot of the time because it's so dark out and there's it like you said light pollution you know it could silhouette things you could just see things that you normally would i don't know even during the day i mean you think about it if you're in a city i mean there's skyscrapers i mean there's obstructions of your view of the sky all the so, time i mean everywhere right. you look is a building and typically you see a lot of airplanes flying around during the day so you don't really necessarily notice anything that's abnormal yeah really right. you're, you're you're more distracted i think i think that might be I always noticed living in the big city was like that. I didn't, you know, I paying attention to the sky was kind of like second right. dairy to everything else that was going on. It's like sensory overload constantly. There's constantly cars going, music, <laughs> exactly. everything, you know. But I mean, this one, and then there was three direct eyewitnesses, and I mean, two of them seem like they would be pretty credible. One of them is a reporter, yeah. um, so you know, there's that journalistic integrity, and the other one is. Not so much anymore, <laughs> but back then they had some. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the, there's the fighter pilot, the guy who trains fighter pilots. I mean, you know, I'm in that more... One, in... That one is curious yeah. to me, you yeah. know. I'm so. more inclined to believe somebody who's, you know, in the military when they say this stuff. Right. So I, it, it that sounds well, a lot more... you would think, more... too, that if he wasn't in the military, he'd have to be around the station around this area. You know what I mean? Right. And then it would just kind of be like, oh, that doesn't look... We don't have anything like that out here. What is this? Well, like... I mean, he, uh, Harry said five flight minutes from, from the Kingman UFO, which was still on the ground at, at the time that this happened. So it, <laughs> five who knows? Five flight minutes, yeah. yeah. Five flight minutes is a pretty good distance, though. Yeah, I know. It really is. Right. So, I mean, this could easily be about... I mean, it could be five flight minutes based on our knowledge. You know what I mean? It could be faster than that. Who knows? Right. But uh, that's pretty incredible. Uh, But there's more to the story, folks, and we've got that coming up. There's actually two more crashes that happened and some alien POWs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm assuming we were at war. Well, POWs. Yeah, just somebody was detained. Well, yeah. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation with Harry Drew. He's going to talk a little bit about the May 22nd crash landing. Yes. Just uh, just a little ways north of Kingman. And it's a really interesting uh, situation. There's a lot of intricate moving parts involved in the uh, recovery of the crash, how it was transported, 
and uh, some of the details. Now, this was the place that we checked out, right, when we went to look around? Yeah, so we we went out there two times. Um, we we only went on the public land part, obviously. But, uh, we went out there two times to take a look. There's some cool things out there, but yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's curious. It's pretty cool to look around. But basically, from what I've gathered is that there was some sort of malfunction with one of these crafts it hit one of the rocky buttes or the tops of this mountain and then it uh got kind of flung into the side of the other mountain right like a ricochet almost yeah mm-hmm. so kind of ping yeah bounced right off ping yeah. pong. but uh i mean so the i don't know if you've ever heard of that about it the philadelphia experiment um there is also some strange Stories that surround the Philadelphia experiment, which was going on during the same time involving uh, new types of radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is suggested is that the radar that was be ex- being experimented with during the time is actually what was downing all of these UFOs. That's interesting. It is interesting. But it makes sense, though, um, when so- you think about it, because that that's how we discovered microwave technology was through yeah. radar. Yeah. So it was cooking birds. And they're like, oh, hey. So, I mean, it makes sense that something like that that we're just experimenting with could interfere with uh, aircraft and, and, and stuff. And I mean, if it's making it that bad, I mean, you almost wonder if this is what we, you know, what we're assuming that it is. Right. You know, that, I mean, that's not something that they dealt with yet. Right. For some reason. Well, you I know, mean, like our a, technology, their technology could be di- right. completely different. Exactly. They could interact. You know what I mean? We, we could we have just something. don't know. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what's interesting about all of it. It's like, right. why? If you could travel all the way over here, why would those mess with yours? You just don't know. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. Is like, you. I mean, you put aluminum foil in a microwave and it starts sparking and everything. True. Why does it do that? Yeah, exactly. Like, maybe the, maybe the, an element in their craft that we haven't discovered on Earth is highly reactive to certain frequencies of... Uh, Radio waves. Yeah, and they hadn't discovered a radio. I don't know. Who this is knows? all speculation. I know. We have no clearly, science behind right, it. Right, right. But, I mean, it's interesting. This is all just BSing. But, uh, yeah, this is interesting. It's something that we're just discussing because we don't know. I, I the Only the people who are keeping the secret really know. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So, And even them, even then they might not know. So it's just uh, something that we are personally speculating about. I would think if this really happened after years and years and years of, you know, experimenting with these things and, you know, just all the other things that have happened that I'm sure we haven't heard about, you know, they have a better idea of what's going on. A better idea, yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, if they're, let's just say, a thousand years more advanced than we are, like, there's they've invented science probably that we haven't even considered yet. So how sure. do you... How do you put things into our context that we don't even know to put? Like, how do we ask the question? Yeah, but how do we ask a question to reverse engineer something if we don't know what the question is? No idea. Right. So you have to reverse engineer it. That's how they. I don't know. They they do things like that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they do reverse engineer. I mean, we we reverse engineer technology all the time. Right. But I mean, if you think about it, if 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 their technology is made out of uh, uh, a smart metal. And we have no idea how this smart metal works, and it doesn't have any circuitry or anything like that. Our brains are true, but I would hope after seventy something years they would have, you know, had some sort of breakthrough, even if we don't hear about it. Well, we you do have I mean? Velcro now, so <laughs> yeah, who knows? That was <laughs> but, the key. <laughs> without further ado, here's Harry Drew. He's going to be talking about the Red Lake incident on May twenty second. He goes into a lot more detail. He's done a ton more research. Like I said, anything we say is just speculation, but he's the guy who knows. The second UFO is the Red Lake craft, and that came down on the 22nd of May, 1953, in the morning, and uh, was attended to by three vehicles returning after the handoff of the Kingman craft uh, at uh, the Arizona side of Hoover Dam. And it was taken across the back of the dam over the water uh, by the Army Corps of Engineers who had moved from Camp Irwin, later named Fort Irwin, uh, a a bridge segment, a a barge, if you will. And they floated the M25M tank transporter with a 38-foot dual axle trailer and the five-ton disc saucer on it across to the other side to take it on 
to Groom Lake. That's where it went, later called Area 51. Okay. So that's, that's called, like in a nutshell, the, the, uh, the uh, Red Lake craft was witnessed by Leonard Neal himself and, uh, and 11 other residents uh, and watched it go down. Neal thought it went into his reservoir, which is called Futank in Arizona. It's on the map and topographically uh, 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 indicated so. I could not read the ground terrain there, which I have expertise in because of vegetation growth over the last 15 to 20 years. I had someone who is a scientist who was working with James Cameron on the Mariana Trench Dive, who has invented the most advanced R, uh, uh, ROV flight control system on Earth. And I stopped his work and he came up and I flew a drone with my cameras on it at both the landing site and the Red Lake UFO crash site so that I could determine with certainty my suspicions on the ground. And I did, in fact, find where the craft, the Red Lake craft, ricocheted off of a Rocky Butte, which is now under government control, interestingly enough, and, uh, and then overshot the reservoir and augured in uh, to the desert floor, which I have found, along with all of the rock piles from bottom rock dug up by the Air Force, that left it there. <laughs> and they take, took away uh, what was left of the craft, which was severely damaged in the forward end of uh, what is the forward end of one of these things. Two of the crew uh, were deceased. Uh, later, they were severely injured, had low extremity injuries in their legs, uh, severe. They were taken to Nellis, the infirmary for medical treatment, where they died. The other two crew were taken to Grumlick like the first four were, immediately. They were described to me in an interview I did with uh, a now-deceased Air Force colonel, lieutenant colonel, uh, who was one of, of the team brought in, and there's a, a complete description about how uh, how all that happened and everything else. And uh, but he was it was the first uh, time for the team and for him the, for the individual himself, and he was stunned. And as he told me about it, at, uh, and a very clear-minded, 85 years of age, when I interviewed him, and that was about 11 years ago. And uh, and uh, he gasped when he said they were human. They didn't expect that. And they didn't actually expect what they found to begin with. And uh, But they had a very good idea where it went down because of the cause and the, and the effect uh, of uh, temporary uh, radars being experimented on here. There were three of them before the Air Force sighted a major advancement in radar at what we call Radar Hill in 1955, and they moved in 200 Air Force people. Okay. I mean, that's all documented fact. And so, uh, and, and so uh, they had to send a Jeep out uh, to, uh, on the south uh, east side of, of the Wallaby Mountain, they had to send a Jeep north to get out past where the mountain extends out towards uh, the Hualabai Valley so that they could communicate with their walkie-talkies because there was no signal. Okay. And, uh, and at the site, there is no cell signal right now. Okay. I've been there multiple times. Uh, when I finally got the one thing, and I got it from this Air Force guy, uh, he said in passing, and I've learned over the years with uh, the hundreds of interviews that I've done, uh, uh, that uh, you need to listen to everything they're saying because sometimes they say something under their breath, and it's and it's a it's a clue. It's a, it's something um, that means very little to them uh, uh, in their storyline. Because they've thought it about it so many times. To somebody, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> so I got so I got a landmark. Okay. Nobody's ever had the landmark, and when I finally found that from the sci from the specialist. Uh, Operation uh, Upshot Knothole nuclear bomb test scientist who was here, uh, 
brought in from Indian Springs Air Force Base with 14 other specialists to uh, uh, Phoenix, where they, they, there were 25 already there, and they loaded them aboard a GM 3301 model uh, bus, 840 of them built for the U.S. Army, and uh, it had a capacity that could handle 40 if you use an internal uh, place at the back for luggage. There was no back window, all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I know the driver's name. I know the, I know where the bus went afterwards. I know the driver's name who drove it from Fort Ord to Camp Roberts every day mm-hmm. as a, a soldier. This is an Army bus. And uh, so it's like, a, and I also have, you know, when they die, the deceased, where they're buried. This is the kind of thing that that we do when we're doing history on people. The, the bus went out on the 21st of May, 1953, and arrived in the early evening to examine the craft. They were told by an Air Force colonel who was, as it turns out, uh, uh, was with uh, Operation Blue Book. They had no idea, and they were given a story, a cover story, that they were going out to examine a super-secret Air Force uh, uh, experimental plane, uh, which may today, if anybody thought about it, it would make no sense. They take you to a hangar to see it, okay? Not to the crash site. Correct, right. Air, Air Force has its own, and, and I have, you know, I even have relatives. They're Air Force, U.S. Air Force investigators, crash investigators. You know, they've never, they've never done this for real. But this is the story they gave all these guys because they don't know. You know, anything other than uh, whatever their specialties are and whatever uh, area that they're working in. And, and this one fellow, Arthur G. Stansel Jr., S-T-A-N-S-E-L, all the fakers misspell his last name. They spell S-C-A-N-Z-E-L or C-E-L, and they talk about all the research they've done, and they misspell his name, you know, right off the bat. Uh, for people like me, you go... Uh, wait a minute, you know, if you're going to tell me about what he did and all of these things, at least learn how to spell his name right. And uh, some of you might accuse him of changing his name uh, on purpose, you know, and they used a, uh, an alias and a bunch of other things. So it's, uh, it's bizarre stuff. We're back with Arizona Mysteries of History. We're going to be hearing from Harry Drew right now, finishing up our interview with him about the third and final crash. The third one was the north face of the Wallapai Mountain, about, uh, just about like the park distance, and uh, it hit in, in the uh, morning, morning, mid-morning and was watched and described as a disc and uh, they were described often as a disc. And it slammed into the mountain, and it set it on fire. It burned out of control for a couple of weeks before the governor requested National Guard come in to help put it out. But the very early part, this is strictly Kingman volunteers and uh, fire, fire response. Uh, the most sophisticated things they had to fight the fire with were large, galvanized steel tubs uh, to add water to and soak gunny sacks in to beat the grass fire <coughs> portion, and, uh, and then picks and shovels to shovel dirt, and uh, guys with saws to cut down some trees if they could, or cut a fire road until they got a bulldozer up there. There was a Forest Service worker who took things up, and he had been back to Kingman to wherever to get whatever he was getting, and he took it back up uh, to uh, give for the workers, and he noticed two individuals close to the, where the source of the fire was. And uh, he watched them, and they basically appeared to be disoriented uh, or, like, uh, uh, detached, uh, not, not aware of where things were. Pardon me, where they were, and he became suspicious that they had uh, that they were arsons, and they didn't belong there. And uh, these were two individuals that were described as they were led away in custody as two quote strange-looking men unquote, 
and wearing some type of coveralls. But that was 24 May, 1953. Now, the interesting thing is about that craft, it hit, I'm going to give you uh, not much of a coordinates, but it hit the Wallapai Mountain, okay, at a place that in 1950, another craft hit one mile away in distance from the 1953 crash, okay? And in the 1950 episode, there were five, okay, and three that were burned and picked up by a, a, a U.S. Uh, uh, Army Guard captain who had been dispatched there with National Guard to help fight the fire in 1950. So, that so three crashes total, a dogfight in this area. In this area, and then actually, so technically four crashes because he said there was another one in 1950, a mile away from this third and final one. That's that's crazy. But two of them, okay, so two of them, two of them crashed. One of them actually aggressively landed. Aggressively landed, yeah. Right, and that was the actual. That was the first one that took place on May 18th. Well, I guess technically the first one would have been the one in 1950. Well, yeah, technic- but, technically the first but one. But over this seven-day incident, yeah, yeah, this was the this was the uh, first that actually somewhat landed, and then the other two uh, crashed into the side of the Wallapais, and they, both of them caused fires. And we can you hear the fire trucks in the background? <laughs> yeah, somebody's in trouble. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> um, and we have actually reached out to the uh, records department to verify the fires ourselves. Unfortunately, due to the situation. Um, with COVID-19, they are shut down, so they can't provide us with any of that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not digitized yet, uh, but those records of the fire do allegedly exist. And we can always do an update on and that. And we're going to, yeah, we're yeah. going to do an we're gonna do an update. Just because, like, a lot of this information is verifiable. There's just so much of this that it's one of those things that you can really just keep coming back to, you know? Keep going. I mean, like, it's just the story is so, like, Roswell really is, is if, nothing. This mm. is Real and you know I have I have my I I think that something happened out here real I, serious. Well, with talking, you know, I want to know what happened. Yeah, with all the all the talking we've done with Harry and like all the independent research that we verified ourselves, I can't I can't envision something have not right happened. Yeah, it's just and some of the elements of the story are almost too fantastical to even make up. I I, sh- I don't know. <laughs> it's it's. I mean, like, it feels like Kingman was the ground zero of, like, a mini U- alien incursion. <laughs> like, it was a festival. It was, it, yeah, that's what it was. Actually, they were just coming to party. There was a bunch of drunk redneck aliens. Yeah, and it was just, uh, it was just road rage <laughs> that was going right. on in the sky. <laughs> trying to carve out a Could flight path. Could you imagine? <laughs> just, they're ridiculous. Like, that guy cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> Fire the lasers. <laughs> Right. They just don't honk. They just fire lasers. That'd be cool. <laughs> no, no, it would not. Could you imagine the amount of carnage if cars had lasers? Right, it'd be like twisted metal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it's an, it's such an incredible story, and uh, Harry Drew he writes about it in his book, which is not released yet, but it's going to be released relatively soon when he finally uh, puts the finishing touches. He's got um, backup information, documents, and stuff that he cites as well. Um, and then lastly, there were two alien captives held right here in Kingman, yeah. which I find up the road from where we're at. It was, it, it was, it's, it's alleged that it was at the Kingman County courthouse in the jail. That's right next to that. Yeah. That old jail. It's pretty incredible. And now that place is being held. It's used as like an archive. Hmm. So Hi, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would assume over time, I mean, they're even building a new courthouse next to it. So, right. You know, things change. Things but, change. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if if that's the case, that's that makes Kingman a historical spot. You know what I mean? Uh, of sorts, at least for our time. Right. You know? I would love to see a UFO festival so here. So if this was the beginning of all, of anything that was happening, or, you know, just when they first made contact with something, then that may, <laughs> you know, that could essentially mean that first contact was made in Kingman, which is mind-blowing. So <laughs> yeah, first contact, first right. contact. Because That's what I mean. <laughs> the Roswell one was uh, like a total crash. Yeah. So there weren't, as far as as far as the story goes, there weren't any bodies. Yeah. I mean, live aliens recovered from the right. Roswell crash. There were in the Kingman crash, supposedly. So alive, right? Just injured, multiple. Yeah, multiple. So this, wow, wow. 
This is why Kingman should have like the UFO festival. Right. Yeah. They can't stop us all. They're not going to find anything out here. (laughs) We're not trying to stop you. We want you to come. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But uh, anyway, here's Harry Drew closing out the show with uh, the title of his book and a little tidbit of uh, what happened when they were uh, taken captive. My book is entitled uh, 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 Seven Days in May, The Kingman UFO Story. And um, it's based on interviews, direct evidence, no cer- nothing circumstantial, uh, verified. Uh, the head of uh, Mojave County Court Security confirmed some things for me, took me to a place I had a document on that still exists that is relative to the third UFO and uh, and where two of the crew members who were taken into custody by county lawmen and locked in a solid concrete vault below grade. And uh, the sheriff was sought out by one of the deputies while three guarded the vault and a, a forest service worker sat out the door, sat outside of the door in an oak chair uh, while the other two, uh, quote, strange-looking men, unquote, wearing some type of coveralls, flight suits. And uh, the sheriff came to get, uh, to interview, interrogate. The room was called, uh, detention room, later was called an interrogation room, because that's what it was. And uh, when they opened the door to go in, this is behind two locked doors, plus the door they were locked behind. They weren't there anymore. Huh. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and so the, the response was, and they vanished, you know. And, uh, of course, Harry Houdini would still be there. So that's it for this episode, the 1953 Kingman UFO incident. Uh, if you want to listen to the entire story with all the interviews and everything you can we have the full unedited uninterrupted version and if you are still interested in hearing more we're going to be doing a story on our local brunswick hotel dun 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 so that one will be an interesting one. We'll uh, do a little history about it, about some of the legends that surround that place and uh, the supposed ghosts that walk through the halls of the hotel that you've probably drank next to. It's Sportsman's. Right. So, yeah. Right. There's uh, probably a lot more than what you're aware of that has happened. I've actually learned a lot, just like doing just a little bit of research. Right. So. I want to stay a night. Yeah. We should. We should make this happen. I have done that one night. Yeah. And I'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Arizona Mysteries of History. Keep following us every week. Thursday is the live broadcast and then again online. Oh.